he said, you can rip more raw meat off the carcass of life. But he said, in the end, you're left with nothing. And he said, and That's you look back, book. it's a wonderful line. And he said, and you look back and, and you just realize that, that you've been chasing the wrong thing all of these years. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Morning, Skippy. What's up, Dougals? We got a show. We got ourselves a show. On today's show, we have uh, number one selling, this is New York Times and Wall Street Journal uh, author, and um, author of the book that Dougals and I have both uh, consumed and loved recently, Richer, Wiser, Happier. We have William Green on the show. Yeah, it, it was it was an awesome, uh, really awesome conversation. William knows his stuff like in and out and has thoroughly researched and thought about these topics. It was phenomenal to be able to get the opportunity to talk to him. Yeah, I mean, I, at least 25, 30 years of talking to the world's best investors. And um, I, I may have fanboyed out a little bit, but if I fanboyed out, it's simply because we got to talk about some great value investors. And I kept waiting for the great momentum, long trend, Dougal style investors to pop up. And they just, I just didn't hear about them. Do, is that coming in another episode, Dougals? Or like, what's happening here? Well, you know why? Uh, no. Highlander, baby. There can be only one. <laughs> wow. Uh, we'll let the listeners just, uh, my style has uh, many brilliant investors with decades of outperformance and Dougal's style has, uh, there can be only one. There we go. Um, I think we went over an hour and a half. It's the most thorough interview I've heard. Uh, so... Please enjoy, guys, and send feedback our way. Uh, we love additional reviews um, of the pod. Hopefully, you like it. And also, you can get in touch with us on Twitter at SkippyDougals and SkippyDougals at gmail.com. Enjoy, guys. So, William, thanks so much for joining us. We're, we're super excited to talk to you. Uh, we both love the book. I was really taken with, I mean, I think there's few people in the world that have had the access to the world's greatest investors that you've had over the last 25 or so years, maybe even more. And I think a lot of people with that privilege may have written a book along the lines of this is how you get rich. And you didn't do that. You know, you wrote a book that uh, says, let's look at how the world's best or some of the world's best probabilistic thinkers think about all sorts of decisions, including how to be wiser and happier. And so I just wanted to thank you uh, for that to kick off, because I think that's that's great. But uh, we also really wanted to dive in with why it was important for you to write this book and why it was important for you to take that perspective uh, with this knowledge that you gained over the years. Yeah, first, thank you so much for having me and for those kind words. I, I really appreciate it. One, one of the funny things about writing a book is you you spend, in, in my case, because I'm very slow and obsessive, you spend sort of four or five years in a vacuum and you have absolutely no idea if anyone is going to appreciate what you're doing. or and, and you become kind of embarrassed by how long it's taking you. And in my case, I missed my deadline by something like two years. So uh, so, so coming out of my cave and discovering that the book is resonating with, with you guys is, is a, a, a joyous experience. So thank you. Uh, so, so to go back to your question, yeah, the reason it was important to me to write this, I think, is that I was grappling with these questions myself. I was trying to figure out 
yeah, how do I become financially independent and secure so I don't have to work for anybody I dislike and so that I can send my kids to good colleges and I can retire and live where I want and do what I want. So those things are, in practical terms, kind of important. But I'm also grappling with this question of how to live and how to think and how to deal with the fact that the future is unknowable and yet we have to make decisions about the future and how do we deal with change and uncertainty and how do we deal with setbacks and failure and, and build resilience so that we bounce back from anything. And so for me, the great investors are an incredible filter through which to see the world because they're such pragmatists. They'll, they'll take any idea that works from any discipline. They, all they care about is basically whether it works, right? It's, it, it's not like um, journalists where it's, it's sort of rent an opinion. We'll, we'll pontificate about anything, whether we know, whether we know that we're right or wrong. It just doesn't really matter. It's, it, we'll, we're we're um, free, free to pontificate about any, any idea or question. These guys actually have money on the line. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about someone, say, like Howard Marks, who I write about at length, here's a guy who's managing something like $120 billion. And so during the global financial crisis in 2008, 2009, he, he was literally betting $500 to $600 million a week on toxic bonds. So he and, and ended up making something like $8 billion in profit. So here's someone who's actually who's actually having to say, is the world coming to an end? Is the financial system melting down? Or is everybody overreacting? And, and, and how do I bet on an unknowable future? So there's something very clarifying about actually having skin in the game. They're not, they're not like academics who have, who have tenure and yes. can just be wrong about anything or political pundits on, on, on CNN or MSNBC or Fox or whatever, who can just be, be wrong demonstrably or, or pollsters. You know, these are guys who pay a price for their mistakes and who are rewarded for thinking better. So for me, the idea that I had access to these amazing minds and that they could, they could help me think about how to live and how to think was an unbelievable privilege and opportunity. And then there's, there's, some, there's some glimmer of, uh, of altruism in my personality as well. So, uh, so I was thinking, wow, what an amazing thing if I can actually share these ideas with, with everyone, really with, with my, my kids who are 20 and 23, with, um, with relatives, with friends, with strangers. That's, it's kind of an amazing opportunity. And so the more, the more I got into it, the more excited I became and the more I felt, actually, this is, this is kind of special. It's, it's really an opportunity to share some extraordinary ideas from some of the, some of the great minds of our time. Yeah, I love the approach. Um, and there's so many great stories you talked about, Marx. We definitely have uh, some questions outlined specific to stories in the book. I I'm curious if there's a story or two or an investor or two that almost made the book and maybe in retrospect you wish might have, but didn't. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting question. There, there were some people that I interviewed at great length and then I decided I, I just actually don't have room to go into it here and, and let me let me let me hold it for another project and I I think that was really just my way of dealing with the pain of not being able to get them in you know I had I had to sort of I had to convince myself there would be another project so I could cope with with that sense of loss and one of the most extraordinary people who I I mentioned briefly I write a couple of paragraphs about him 
Um, but but I mean, I went to Canada to interview him. I spent a lot of time with him and he's a remarkable guy. Is a man called Francis Chu, who I think is a fascinating investor. And 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 he he in some ways, I, I mean, he has an extraordinary life story, right? Because he he's totally self-educated. He he grew up poor in um in India. And he's actually of Chinese extraction. And he moved to Canada when he was pretty young. And he he was doing things like working for the, the local um, uh, phone company, like soldering or soldering, however you pronounce it, wires and stuff, you know, climbing up on those ladders and, and soldering. And, and he discovers Ben Graham at a certain point and, and teaches himself to invest. And when he was a young kid, I think he had been orphaned, if I remember rightly, when he was a young kid, he'd spent all of his time shopping in, in the market for his family from the age of something like seven. He was responsible for his siblings and his and his mom's shopping. And he said, well, I knew how to find a bargain. I'd always been looking for bargains in the market. And he applied that to investing and became an extraordinarily successful investor. And, and I mentioned him in a chapter that I write about Monish Pabrai, who's another great investor, because it's a very similar style of investing where basically you're detaching yourself from the crowd and you're and you're just waiting for very very rare mispriced gambles as as Charlie Munger Warren Buffett's partner would put it and so instead of participating in the market all of the time what what Chu and Monish Pabrai are doing is they're waiting with this kind of extraordinary patience for for what what um Munger, Munger calls, you know, a succulent salmon. He says, basically, you should, you should be like a spear fisherman waiting by the side of the stream. And most of the time you're doing absolutely nothing. And then once in a while, a fat, juicy salmon swims by and you spear it. And then you go back to doing nothing. And, um, and, and I think that's a wonderful image for what these guys do. And, and Chu basically said to me at one point, he said, um, he said, yeah, I could wait 10 years without buying anything. And I talked to him on the phone a couple of weeks ago, just because he, he kind of called randomly to, to chat. And he had he basically hadn't bought anything in years and had been looking like a fool for years. And everybody thought he was he was toast. And then COVID came and the market crashed and he was unbelievably aggressive and and just made an, an enormous killing. And it was just such a fascinating example of just how brilliant this approach is of instead of instead of feeling that you have to have lots of small positions, trade constantly um, and just be hyperactive. Here are these guys like like Manish Pabrai, Francis Chu, Charlie Munger, who have this diff, this this different approach, which is you you concentrate on your best ideas. You wait for the mispriced gamble, and then you you grab it with what Munger calls gumption. And I I think for most of us we can't actually do it. It's too difficult temperamentally yes. and intellectually. But I think if you're if you're if you're looking to be an enormously successful investor, this is this is one of the best routes to success. And and um, sorry, I apologize, my English accent. I should be saying one of the best routes to success. But um, we love the, your English accent. We, we, we only you. speak American on this podcast. So. <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that. My um, my English accent gives me this veneer of sounding like I know what I'm talking about. It's it's, it's my secret weapon. 
And so, um, yeah, I think it's a brilliant, a, a brilliant approach, this kind of concentrated, patient approach. And I have this feeling that somewhere in the middle of nowhere, there's there's some sort of brilliant 22 year old kid who's reading my book and it's going to make billions of dollars because he's sort of he's seen what Monish and Francis Chu and Munger do. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's my approach. I'm going to I'm going to own six stocks yeah. And, uh, yeah, exactly. and and just wait patiently. So to grab onto a couple of concepts that I've heard, you mentioned that uh, investors that you talk to generally, they care about whether or not it works. And there's also the concept when you put psychology into that, it's the how the machine works is also important depending on the temperament of the investor. Something that you discuss a bit in the book is the card playing. And you mentioned how a number of the investors played bridge or they play poker. Um, and so that's a common thread. I'm a poker player myself. Uh, and one commonality that I've seen between poker, I'd say in business broadly, is that the notion of avoiding the death line, right? You, have, you still have to be in the tournament in order to win the tournament, right? You still have to have some, some chips on the table and money in the game for investing. One thing in, in the book you mentioned is um, anti-fragility fragility and the, the, ability, the, uh, the ability to avoid the death line is being important. So some of the stories in the book reminded me of Andy Grove and his uh, only the paranoid survive concept. And then you've got someone like Pabrai, who when I, when I look at him relative to someone like Marx, it seems like he's much more risk forward. Generally, even if he's patient, he's much more risk forward. Uh, how is this concept of anti-fragility held or not across the mentality of the investors that you talk to? Yeah, it, it's it's a really, really important theme. And I, I, I write a lot about this, about the simple importance of avoiding catastrophe. And I, I think there's nothing more important. There's, there's a there's a wonderful thing from Joel Greenblatt, who who's one of the one of the great hedge fund managers who I write about at length, where he says if if you don't lose money, all of the other options are pretty good, and and I think I think that basic idea of of um, as as I put it, sort of uh, messing with the, um, the 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 medical commandment, first do no self harm. I think that's really important. If you if you can just stay in the game for a long time, the power of compounding is so enormous that that you end up winning massively and. So I think there's I think there's a real tension here between the approach of someone like Monish Pabrai, who's very very concentrated, and at one point uh, in his offshore hedge fund a couple of years ago, I think had most of the money basically in two stocks, which I think is kind of nuts. Um, there's a tension between that, which which allows Monish to outperform massively, and the need to survive and. And I think we all have to kind of find our own comfort level between the desire to outperform and the desire to survive. And I think I think Monish is a rare case where he's he's analytically brilliant and he has a great temperament. Um, but I do think there's a um, I, I say in a footnote, and I always wondered if Monish would point this out. He's never mentioned it to me. I say in a footnote when I'm talking about Matthew McLennan, who's very risk averse. I say. Monish is much more likely to fly the plane into the mountain than Matthew McLennan. <laughs> but I also think Monish is much more likely to outperform massively than Matthew McLennan. And so there's a fascinating tension there. And, and McLennan has this really interesting approach to removing fragility. This is, this is a guy who manages about $90 billion and is the, is the successor of Jean-Marie Eviard, who is a, another great value investor who, who was brilliant at, at winning 
through through error elimination, basically. He he avoided um, the Great Japan bubble, which for a um, for a global investor was a really tough thing to to do. I mean, it's it's hard to remember that there was a point where Japan was so dominant that that it actually the the market value of the Japanese stock market was greater than the U.S. and the U.K. combined, and yeah, so we, all of the top stocks were Japanese. We and just so talked a, about that on the podcast a couple of weeks back. Sorry to interrupt. Oh, you it did? was forty five percent of the total world market capitalization. Exactly, which is just a it's crazy, crazy number for how small it's crazy. Japan so was. imagine the courage that it took for Evia to say. Um, at the peak of that bubble to, to, to say, I'm not going to own a single Japanese stock. And so he moved totally out of the market. And then he did the same thing during the, the dot-com bubble in the late 90s and refused to play in, in that craziness and almost lost his career and his fund because of it, because there was so much pressure within his own company to, to, to play in this casino and then did the same thing before the um, financial crisis, where basically avoided all of the financial stocks. And so that removal of three of three fads, three overpriced um, uh, periods, where he he just wasn't prepared to play and wasn't prepared to pay up. It it actually was the difference between him being enormously successful and him being mediocre. Um, but it was incredibly hard to do. So, so this is a theme that comes up throughout the book is how do you remove fragility and, and what are the, the enemies of resilience? And, and I use Eveyard's story partly to talk about why it's so difficult, particularly if you're managing money for other people, because your, your shareholders are so fed up. If, if, if they want you to own you know, Tesla as it's soaring and you instead own some crappy, boring company that's massively undervalued and has gone nowhere in three years. That's very difficult to do. And one of the things that that Eveyard said is that it's just a huge a huge advantage for Buffett and Munger that that Berkshire Hathaway has captive capital, and so they actually because it's a public company, people can't redeem their their shares in in the fund. They can't cash out. And so during a period like the global financial crisis, when Berkshire Hathaway lost half its value in terms of its stock stock price. Um, they just didn't care. They, Buffett and Munger were just quietly able to, to make bets on things like Goldman Sachs at massively discounted prices that actually made Berkshire Hathaway much more, much more valuable over the long term, even though the stock price had gone down. So, so I think if there's, a, if there's a takeaway for us as regular investors, it's that this is one area where we actually have an advantage because we don't have shareholders who are about to redeem. And so we actually can be contrarian and can hold steady in times where where other people are being irrational and throwing caution to the wind or or uh, you know who who do we have who's going to complain at us it's like my my wife can look and see how badly i'm performing but but <laughs> nobody else and and she's not that interested and so so yeah i i think that is an advantage for a regular investor it's one of the few advantages i think is that you you don't you don't have the pressure to act the whole time and you don't have the pressure to try to outperform quarter by quarter. And so you can just act in a, in a kind of counter-cyclical, patient way and, and buy more when things are cheap and, and, and not chase after fads when, when things are expensive. Yeah, I think that's great. We, we also love Joel Greenblatt on the podcast. And I, I loved your profile of him here. 
one of the things that struck me, you've already mentioned uh, Graham and Buffett and Munger and, and the other giants of value investing a bunch, and, and they're frequent uh, members or frequently mentioned in the book as well. It struck me that Greenblatt is at the at Wharton, the University of Pennsylvania, studying finance, and they're teaching him the fic- efficient market hypothesis and everything else. And he's going, this just doesn't add up. And then he goes and reads, I think it was security as the analysis rather than the intelligent investor by Ben Graham, and it clicks for him. And that is a somewhat frequent theme throughout the book. These people find Benjamin Graham effectively, a lot of them, and, and go. So I think this is really a, a multi-part question. One is, I'm curious for your thoughts on why our financial education system, in a lot of cases, teaches complexity that doesn't lead to outperformance. Um, but then I'm also want your take on how many, it seemed like the majority of investors profiled were value investors. And I guess I, I wonder if you think value investing is maybe the easiest path to outperformance in the investing space. Yeah, that may just be my prejudice because it's because I don't think there are that many value investors around. Most people, most people haven't bought into that religion. But I, but I don't think it's a coincidence that those are the guys who thrive and survive over decades. And I, I think part of what I was trying to do in this book was not focus on people who had been a flash in the pan over one cycle, but to look at people who've built successful careers over many decades. And so you look at someone like Francis Chu, who we were talking about before, and he looked like a fool and an idiot for years. And Eliard looked like a fool and an idiot for years. And, and at the moment, I think it's tough for someone like Matthew McLennan. I mean, th- these, these guys are out of favor, right? It's very difficult. Um, it's not an easy path to buy things that are cheap and out of favor because you can, you can just, you're, you're diverging from the crowd in a way that's very difficult psychologically. But I think it has such intellectual um, robustness, that approach. It, essentially, it, and Greenblatt has a beautiful description of it where he, 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 just, he just reduced investing to its essence. And, and he just said, look, all you're doing is valuing an asset and then buying it for much less than it's worth. And that's the whole game. And his point to me is that once you realize that that's the entire game, it makes everything else look kind of silly. And you start to realize that all of these, these high-priced helpers who are telling you to trade the whole time or, or these academics who are telling you to focus on the Modigliani, Modigliani measure and the, the Sortino this, and I, you know, that it's, it, it sounds really great, but it's kind of, it's kind of giving this illusion of um, scientific certitude and exactness to an area that's really messy. And I think one of the things that, that Joe Greenblatt figured out very early on was that when you actually look at the markets, they're crazy and people are crazy. It's irrational. And there, there, was, a, there was a bit where I, I was really enjoying myself writing about this. And I was like, no, nobody can tell me that this isn't the way I should write this. This is one of the great things about books. And so I'm saying, yeah, the markets are like this festival of folly and this, this comedy of errors. And the idea that these academics had that the markets were somehow rational. It's like, what's rational about it? Do you look at Tesla or Bitcoin and think this is rational? I mean, maybe, maybe that, I mean, Bill Miller, who I've interviewed a lot, um, has a great argument for why Bitcoin is, mm-hmm. is very rational, even though it's extremely volatile. But the, the markets are crazy. And so the advantage that someone like Joe Greenblatt has 
is that he's very dispassionate and he knows how to value businesses and he quietly values the business and he sees when it's at a discount. And then he has the patience and the fortitude and the self-belief actually to hold until there's this convergence between the, the, the value and the price, which he believes typically happens within two or three years, but sometimes takes a lot longer. And, and so I, I think there's just such, there's such robustness to that way of thinking about investing that, that all you're really doing is trying to find stuff that's undervalued and then, and then buy it counter cyclically and then just wait. But that, that's so difficult because it, it requires you A, to know how um, markets work, to understand that this is the context um, that, that you need, the intellectual framework that you need, B, to be able to actually value an asset, which is not easy. It's not something that I can do necessarily. I mean, I'm, I'm too lazy and too unmathematical and too impatient uh, actually to do it. And, and, and C, then to have the temperamental strength, the fortitude to, to buy when everybody else hates something, um, to think that the market, to have the arrogance that, to, to believe that the market is wrong and you're right, and the humility, which is a totally contradictory characteristic, to think, yeah, but maybe I'm wrong, so let me really check this out and let me really stress test my, my analysis. And then the tremendous patience and fortitude to, to wait while, while, while you look like a fool for years. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult, but it, but as as Munger says, investing is simple, not easy, and so so you have to understand these simple concepts, this simple framework for how to think about the market. But actually, executing on it is difficult, and analytically, temperamentally, psychologically, that's really hard. And so I, I think that's that's part of the fascination of it is that. Um, you realize there's this kind of slippage between just understanding the game, the rules of the game, and actually being equipped to win the game. Yeah, one one thing um, that Skippy and I were talking about the other day that I thought was really interesting is I'd always thought about investing as kind of a solo sport. It's me against myself and my understanding of the market, my belief in where we are today, my belief in what I should buy, et cetera. And in the book, you you talk a lot about how investors were seeing as playing against other people. And I, 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 that was, it was psychologically really interesting for me. I hadn't thought about that concept before. Um, and so it was fascinating. But in a sense, you're, you're right that it is a solo sport. And there's a, there's a, fascinating, there's a fascinating section of the book. Not, I'm not saying this in a self-congratulatory way, where, where Chris Davis from this, this family of kind of billionaires of three generations of, of extraordinary investors talks about the personality of the great investors. And, and Chris is a guy who's very close to Munger and Buffett and his, and his father was a famous investor and his grandfather was a famous investor. And he's sort of friends with people like Bill Miller. So he's, he's sort of observed all of these strange characters for a long time, these very unusual people. And he talks about um, how in many cases they have low EQ, that they, they actually... He, he says there are people who aren't really aware of what the crowd thinks and how other people think in many cases, which makes it much easier for them to diverge from the crowd because they're not really thinking, oh, this is how I ought to think and how I ought to feel. They're just quietly and dispassionately analyzing the odds. And I, I thought there's a really interesting observation also when he explained that m- when you look at CEOs, for example, they were the sort of people who, when they were at college, were in charge of the fraternity or or were yep. captain of the hockey team or the soccer team or whatever. And he said, with the investors, they were all loners. They were, 
they were the, the great investors. If they played a sport, it was squash or they were running or something like that. And he's, he's, he talked about his father and how his father used to just sit at home with a, with a stack of quarterly reports and annual reports in his phone and just call. And he just said it was, it was kind of a lonely existence. And I, I thought that was a really interesting image that these, these guys, there is a, there is a, it, it, it's not universally true. There are some great investors who I think are very, very amiable and sociable and have, have great family relationships. And, and you, but I do think, I do think there's this, this sort of non-tribal aspect to the great investors where they're totally happy to diverge from the crowd, totally happy to be on their own thinking, thinking for themselves. And I, I think one reason why they resonate so much with me is because as a writer, you're similar to that. I mean, there's a there's a beautiful image from the novelist Henry James, who talked about how the how the writer is there with his nose pressed up against the glass, looking through the, the glass window from, from the outside, always observing. So you're sort of you're part of things, but you're always separate from things. And I I think there's a similarity with the great investors that they're they're non-tribal, they're they're able, there's through some quirk of their wiring, they don't have the same need to be part of the herd. And, and so if you think of it in evolutionary terms, there's a tremendous advantage to being part of the herd. You know, when 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 you when you're being chased, it's really good to be part of a a, a group of, of 50 or a hundred or whatever. Um, as long as you're in the middle. As long yeah. as you're in the middle, yeah. As long as you're and, not the slowest. Exactly. And and then there's this strange group of people who I think don't need to be part of the herd. And, and particularly in extreme periods where either the market is running away and is crazy and ebullient, people take comfort in being part of the crowd. And in, and in catastrophic periods where everything's melting down, they take comfort in the crowd. And so it's an enormous temperamental advantage if you're someone who actually doesn't need to be part of the, part of the crowd. And I, I think weirdly, this is, I, I in many ways am not wired to be a great investor, but this is one thing that I actually do have is in, in moments when the market's falling apart, I have this kind of weird peace and this ability to, to invest very calmly. And actually when everything's going well and everyone's happy and ebullient, I have this kind of fearfulness where I just expect things to fall apart. And, and so it's very hard for me to be bullish and and optimistic at, at, at times when other people are. So I have sort of the contrarianism, but I'm but I'm not calm enough and, I, and unemotional enough. I I'm, I'm too swept up in in my own kind of biases and fears and 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 tendency towards anxiety. And so I I think part of it for all of us, if there's a takeaway, it's it's to 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 read about these great investors and then be self aware enough to say, well, how am I wired? I mean, how do I respond to volatility? How do I how do I respond when everything is is surging and other people? Uh, I, I think Taleb uses the the phrase "lucky fools." There are all of these lucky fools who are betting on nonsense and and making and making a fortune. And does it hurt you? Does it upset you? And does it make you throw caution to the wind, or or are you happy just to stick with the principles that you know of uh, approximately right and will work over time? And maintain your discipline, and so that that self knowledge actually becomes enormously helpful. I think I love uh, Talib's uh, um, analogy about Russian roulette that he makes in Fooled by Randomness, where he he basically says if you have 
you have a gun with 10 chambers and there's one bullet in it and someone, you know, you, if you get $10 million, if it doesn't fire and they win their $10 million then great. So then they do it again and do it again, but eventually going back to our death line, you hit the death line. Yeah. That's an amazing, an amazing book. And I, I think, I think Taleb just has this, um, this extraordinary appreciation for probabilities that, that I think is, is a really consistent strain through all of the great investors. I, I, I remember saying to Joe Greenblatt, um, seems like all of the best investors think in probabilistic terms, always in terms of odds. And he's like, I don't think you could be a great investor without thinking that way. And he just, it, it, there was a very interesting discussion that we had when he talked about one of the greatest investments he'd ever made, which was in, in host Marriott. And I write about this at some length, where it was basically the this this company was splitting up, and there was this sort of toxic little ugly duckling that that had all of the debt and looked terrible, and and it was really small, so no institution would invest in it, and and it just looked awful. Nobody wanted to invest in it, and he looks at it and he's like, wait a second, so so this is a four dollar stock, and it has actually six dollars of assets. And, and then it has this little subsidiary that also looks lousy, but could be worth a lot. And then the person running it is this incredibly smart guy who, who actually had just rescued Trump's business, his casino business that had fallen apart. And so, so he looks at this and he's like, wait a second. So if I think of this in, in terms of odds, basically my chance of losing is pretty much zero. I mean, it, there's so many assets here that I can't really lose. And the upside is enormous because if if this subsidiary becomes worth something, then it could be huge. And and also, I know that I've got six dollars of assets for for a four dollar stock. And so he actually put 40 percent of his assets in that one stock. And and what he said is you you put you put more money in the things where you can where you really almost can't lose. And that's a really interesting idea. This this approach of thinking constantly both in markets and life, about asymmetric bets. So you're always looking for things where the upside greatly exceeds the downside. And, and one of the reasons why this is such a helpful idea is that it's so easily applicable in areas that aren't related to the market. So, so you can say, um, if I'm driving fast and I'm, and I'm eating a kebab on my lap and I'm on the phone and you know, I'm playing loud music, there's a pretty big downside and a limited upside. Like I'm enjoying the music and I'm enjoying my kebab, but it's like, that's a, that's a poor bet. And likewise, Tom, Tom Gaynor, the co-CEO of Markel, who's very happily married to this lovely woman that he's been um, dating since, since they were 15 and went on their first date to the custard stand in, <laughs> in North Salem. Um, he, he said to me, if, if I go to a bar on my own without my wife, who I really love, and and I am drinking. If I drink 10 drinks, that's really dangerous. If I drink two drinks, that's not dangerous. And so he's saying, uh, if, I, if I apply Charlie Munger's um, uh, strategy of inversion, of constantly inverting things and saying, okay, so, so w- what would be a bad outcome? And how do I avoid that? Then he's like, so, so let me not overdrink in a bar when I'm away from, from my wife. And so just applying that idea and thinking, okay, so whether it's infidelity, cheating on your taxes, 
lying, um, treating, you know, losing your temper at work, whatever, shouting at your kids. There's so many ways in which we behave. They're just actually like really bad bets. And I think if you apply this filter throughout life of, of trying to avoid things where there's massive downside, it's, it sort of goes back to that Greenblatt idea of if you don't lose money, all of the other options are pretty good. And, and so if you go through life trying to minimize the number of really stupid things that you do, um, that's a very powerful approach to life. And, and you see it very much with COVID, right? Where yes. if, if you go out into a, a nightclub and you, you know, you're singing and you're dancing and you're sweating and you're up close with everyone, um, it's probably a pretty bad bet. Whereas if you quietly stay home and keep your distance and get vaccinated and, and uh, are careful, you are much more likely to avoid catastrophe and stay in the game. And so I, this actually has really helped me over the last year or so. I mean, I've, I've constantly thought of the filter of these great investors of how, how do I avoid catastrophe? How do I survive the dips, as Matthew McLennan would say, so that I come out the other side of this, hopefully, um, and, um, and, and get to continue playing the game? Yeah, it's great. I love the, I'm pretty sure it's Tom Gaynor that uh, you spent a couple of days with and on the way home uh, from work one day, he took you by the grocery store and uh, <laughs> cooked you dinner. I just thought that was a great little antidote. I, I'd love to talk more. Uh, the Munger chapter, I'll call it, with inversion that you alluded to uh, was so good. One of the, the insights that I hadn't heard, um, and this isn't directly related to Munger, but the same uh, philosophy is the Steuben, uh, Stein, yeah, Ken you know, Steubenstein. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, when you're hungry, anger, angry, lonely, um, yeah, in tired, pain or in stress, in tired, yeah. you, you make poor decisions. And I've been really wrestling with that idea. It's something I think we know, again, it's not something that's necessarily taught in schools. Um, but then on the flip side of that, he says the things that we know improve brain health, our meditation, exercise, sleep, and nutrition. I've been uh, working on kind of crafting maybe something like a daily checklist of like, if I do these things, um, it could be daily, it could be weekly. Like I'm putting myself in a better position to make smart decisions, to have better probabilistic outcomes. Have you thought about that and what might be on a daily or a weekly checklist for you? Oh, I, I think about it constantly. That that's had a huge impact on my life, and that that was one of the most important things that I got out of the book. And um, and there was a point actually. This was one of the few things that when I was writing about that bit about Ken Shubenstein, there was a bit where my editor was like, "I think this is going on a little long. We should cut this paragraph." And I was like, "No, no, no. I'm not explaining properly just how profoundly important this is." Mm -hmm. And I and I rewrote it to to strengthen it because it's so practically important. Because one of the things that, uh, just for your listeners who don't know, Ken Schubenstein is a friend of mine who's a very remarkable guy who was a very successful hedge fund manager slash private equity manager who had about 300 people working for him. And he'd been teaching um, the advanced investment research course at Columbia Business School, which is an amazing business school for, for 10 years. So he's a really shrewd investor, really smart guy. And, but he's also a doctor and he quit the investment business a couple of years ago to become a neurologist. 
and which is a remarkable thing for someone in his late 40s to do. He's a, he's a very special guy. I was really, really proud of him deciding to do that. And he's been he's been treating COVID patients over the last year. And and so Ken is an unusual guy, right? Because he has a deep understanding of the brain, but also a deep understanding of the markets. And so what he figured out is that there are certain, basically by studying a lot of the, the scientific literature on this stuff, he, he just figured out these, these practical workarounds for our own irrationality and our own tendency to make mistakes because our thinking is so influenced by emotion. And so if you think about how difficult it was, say at the start of the, the COVID pandemic, when the market basically lost a third of its value in, in a month, and none of us knew how long this was going to go on, whether we were ever going to have a normal life again, whether it was going to mutate and become even worse, whether the stores were going to open again, whether the economy would crash and go into a, a depression. I mean, it was a very uns unsettling period. It's still unsettling, but not, not as bad, obviously, here in the US as it was then. And so that's a perfect em embodiment, a perfect kind of microcosm of how difficult it is for us to make rational decisions um, when we're swamped with emotion. And so Ken figured out these really practical workarounds, like just saying, okay, so, so let me be really aware of my physiological state. Let me constantly check in on myself to see whether I'm hungry, angry, lonely, tired, in pain, sad, scared. And, and then let me change my behavior. Let me slow down if I'm in these states that are perfect preconditions for screwing up. And so he said that while he was treating patients in the COVID ward, for example, he would, he would be in a room with, you know, 20 or so patients, I think, connected to ventilators, most of whom were dying. And he said, my PPE equipment was just incredibly painful. And, uh, you know, he has a bad back that he hurt when I think he was wrestling as a teenager. And, and you know, he's physically uncomfortable and he's stressed. And he had a, a kid who'd been born, literally his first child had been born about three days earlier. And so he, he had to go stay in a hotel so that he wouldn't um, risk infecting his wife and his newborn child. And so, you know, he's sad, he's scared, he's, he's anxious. He was, he was angry with the government for having screwed up and not got them enough equipment and not taken the, the pandemic seriously enough. And he's really upset that he's having to call the families of these, these patients and tell them, yeah, look, I'm afraid your, your relative is dying and you can't go see them. And so, I mean, this is a perfect, a perfect situation for you to screw up and, 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 and lose your temper and, and treat people badly and not be compassionate enough. And so the fact that he was very tuned in to his physiological state meant that he was able to kind of pause and slow down and remind himself, no, no, I have to have to make sure that I'm going to be as empathetic as possible. I have to make sure that I slow down my decision making because I know I'm going to mess up if I'm if I'm in this state. And and then this, this second point that you made that's so important, which is that, that he also knows that his decision-making is gonna really be affected by his nutrition, his sleep, whether he slept properly, whether, whether he's been exercising and whether he's been meditating. And in that situation, it was so intense that he actually couldn't meditate. So what he would do throughout the day is he would just have what he calls mindful moments where he would go into the, the bathroom in, in the hospital and just breathe for 20 seconds, 30 seconds, just to try to try to ground himself. And I've seen also one of the things that Ken does that's had a big impact on me is that when he's getting swamped by pressure, when, when too many things are going on and, 
and business is difficult or the market is difficult or or there's a personal problem with a, a family member or a friend being sick or something like that, I could see that he would massively simplify his, his life. And so he would go through his calendar and he would just cancel as much as possible, remove as many responsibilities as possible and get back to those four things of, of making sure that his nutrition is good, that he's sleeping as well as possible, um, that, that, that he's exercising and that he's trying to meditate or at least have these mindful moments. And that to me is such a profoundly practical and helpful thing that when I feel myself becoming kind of flooded emotionally or just overwhelmed by the complexity of everything, I um, because think of launching a book, right? It's like you, you spend five years quietly in your man cave thinking and with your feet up on your desk working incredibly slowly. And then suddenly you're out in public and you have to talk to people and you have to arrange things and I'm forgetful and I'm always like, wait, did I get the podcast on the wrong day or something? You know, <laughs> there's so much complexity. And so for me, just to be able to apply Ken Schubenstein's approach of just saying, okay, let me make sure that I exercise. Let me, let me make sure that I try to eat well. And what, one of the things that I think is really helpful, I, I, I write a chapter called High Performance Habits and I, I, I focus a great length on Tom Gaynor because one of the things that Tom figured out is you just want to be directionally correct. You're, you're not trying to be perfect. There are some people who are just incredibly extreme. I mean, I, I write about someone like Sir John Templeton, who I think just had ferocious self-discipline. I, I don't have that. And the ability to remind myself that if I keep plugging away with good habits that are directionally correct, the, the impact over many decades is absolutely overwhelming. It's massive, yeah. And that's that's a profoundly important revelation. And it, it's like many of these great truths, it sounds kind of trite and banal, but I actually, that that for me has been one of the single most important things that I've learned from working on this book is, is you adopt a bunch of habits that are directionally correct uh, and that work over time, and then you keep applying them. And and you don't have to be perfect. It's, it's, it's like... Um, like Tom Gaynor said to me, he said when when he was a kid, he had the diet of a campground raccoon. And so he said, I would eat, you know, 250 donuts a year. And so he says, now I eat 20 donuts a year. And so it's not like he's he's sworn off um, the joy of, of sugar and donuts forever. Um, but he knows that in his case, if he's directionally correct over time, it's going to work out. And, and his view is that that small incremental changes are much more sustainable than than very extreme uh, changes and and that that's not always the case I, I'm, I'm friends with Tony Robbins and Tony said to me at one point for some people it's actually easier just to start fasting for example yeah. like it's it's hard to moderate and and for me actually it's very difficult for me to moderate once I the, the idea of having two slices of toast a day is is like torture it's easier for me <laughs> just to sort of swear off swear swear off something totally and and so I think part of it again is self awareness. You have to you have to decide are you someone who needs to be extreme um, or not. But I I think this idea of finding habits that that resonate with you. So you think yeah yeah I can I can keep going with this habit for a long time. It kind of works for me, and and then just stick with it over many years. And and most of us I think are are so focused on the short term that we fail to notice the the overwhelming advantage the overwhelming benefit that accrues to us over time 
when you do something that's directionally correct and smart. The uh, aggregation uh, of marginal gains is a phrase I yeah, loved in that book. It's that, a ahead, beautiful it. idea. And uh, yeah, just to just to fill in your readers on that, that's that's a phrase that Nick Sleep, one of the great investors I wrote about, borrowed. This is a typical example of how, how the great investors take ideas from everywhere if they work. So, so he's a keen cyclist. And so David Brailsford, who was the coach of the British cycling team that won in the Olympics, which is a rare thing for us as Brits, we don't usually win in these things. Um, so he's a, he's a sort of folk hero. He, he's a guy who had studied Kaizen, this Japanese principle of, of continuous improvement. And what he figured out is there's not one secret source that's going to make you a champion athlete or, or a champion anything. And, and it's the aggregation of marginal gains. So you find all of these little things that give you a marginal advantage, and then you add them together and it becomes overwhelming. And so in his case, it was literally things like saying to the, uh, to, to the cyclist on his team, when we're going on tour to a foreign country, bring your own pillow because you'll sleep better. And, and wear these heated undershorts because they'll keep your muscles warmer. So you're less likely to strain a muscle, I guess. Or, or he would bring in a surgeon to show them how to wash their hands because it was it, it would reduce the likelihood that they would catch a cold and, and miss out on training. And so it's a it's a really beautiful idea. And when I when I was writing that chapter, I had this sense of revelation myself where uh, because I take so long to write anything, it was months and months of working through this mass of, of information. And as I kind of reduced it to that essence of thinking, Ah, it's not the secret source. It's it's the aggregation of all of these small things and being directionally correct over time. And that's that's had a really profound impact on me. And and actually, I mean, over the last year, I I, I I'm sort of naturally a bit of a fat lard ass and don't really want to work out and uh, anything like that. And and at the start of the pandemic, I was thinking, well, okay, so I'm about 25, 30 pounds overweight and and I'm pretty sedentary and I spend all my time working and thinking and reading. And so we got a Peloton and um, I'm not trying to advertise Peloton, but I, you know, I've done something. Yeah, like hopefully not the treadmill, right? Uh, yeah, no, I, <laughs> yeah, I couldn't afford the treadmill. And, um, and so I, um, uh, and, and so I've done something like 400 rides over the last year and, 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 and probably lost something like 20, 25 pounds. And I was thinking of that very much in, 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 with this filter of the great investors, I was thinking, okay, so I don't, you have to distinguish between what you can and can't control in life. So I, I don't have control of whether the government has a good policy and, and whether people understand the benefits of vaccines or whether they understand, I'm not trying to be political here, but just in, in purely pragmatic terms, you're better off if you social distance and wear a mask yes. and, and believe in vaccines. That it, it just in terms of the bet, you're, you're more likely to survive than if you, if, if you don't believe any of that stuff. And, and so I don't have control over what the government policy is. But I do have control over whether I have comorbidities. I have control over whether I'm overweight. And, and, and I was sort of thinking, well, if I study the statistics on heart disease and high blood pressure and stuff like that, and diabetes, I can see that the fact that I eat too much and I'm sedentary and I'm not exercising is actually much riskier than COVID. And, and so if I'm going to apply this kind of probabilistic way of thinking, let me control what I can control. And so I started, I, I started to do intermittent fasting where I wouldn't eat in the morning mm -hmm. and, and I exercise regularly. And, and so that was my way of kind of taking control of a situation that seemed uncontrollable. And I, I think that's a very, it's a very useful way to apply the kind of, the kind of rational thinking that the great investors have 
just just to our regular lives so that you're you're picking good habits that 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 aggregate and compound over time and that tilt the playing field slightly in your favor and and the thing that tom gainer said to me that had a had a, a great impact on me that i quoted to my son last night we were, we were talking about this and and gainer said to me that you that he, he said he was never the best at anything um, he said he was always just hardworking and capable and, and, and diligent. But he said, over time, he said, you do become number one-ish if you, if you do the right thing and keep plugging away. Because he said the field thins out so much yes. that all of these mugs who don't have good habits or who, who, who do things that, are, that, that bring fragility to their, to their portfolio and their life because their behavior is dumb, they all sort of fall by the wayside and you end up becoming number one-ish. And so I was saying to my son, maybe, maybe that's my 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 career plan. Is I, I you know I'm not <laughs> as good as Michael Lewis or or David Remnick, the editor of the New Yorker. But if I but if I keep plugging away, being directionally correct, maybe I'll end up being number one ish. And he was <laughs> like, Nah, probably not. <laughs> I think you're pretty good. Um, Thank you. I love the stories and I love the background. I forget that all of our listeners haven't uh, necessarily made it through your book yet. So thanks for pro providing a little background on some of these stories I'm referring to. A every time I read about Edward Thorpe, I'm just taken by him. And there's a quote in the epilogue. He basically said, who you spend your time with is probably the most important thing in life. And that's another, we talked about Ken Schubenstein's uh, finding with how we think. And that's another thing that just, I feel like it's going to stick with me for a decade. Um, how has that changed the way you think about things? I, have you changed who you're spending your time with um, based on how Edward Thorpe thinks about things? Yeah, I think about that a lot. And and just to just to back up a bit and introduce your listeners to Thorpe. Thorpe I describe in the introduction of the book as as the greatest game player in the history of investing. Mm -hmm. And so here you have this guy who ran a hedge fund that didn't lose money in any quarter for 20 years. He he actually I don't even mention this that you know there's the there's this 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 black shoals method of um valuing derivatives that that black and shoals won a Nobel prize for. Ed Thorpe figured it out years before them and just traded on it. And so you have a guy who's just like this serial genius, right? I mean, he and his he, book is incredible for the listeners that want to dive in. Yeah, it's great. And he's a wonderful guy. I like him tremendously. And he he um and you know, he's the guy who figured out card counting. He figured out how to beat the casino at blackjack, then figured out how to beat the casino at roulette by creating with this guy from MIT, Gord Shannon. They they created the first wearable computer. And Ed literally he would go to the casino. And as the roulette ball is rolling around the, the, the roulette wheel, he, he would activate this, this computer in, with, with the, the big toe inside his shoe. So he's furtively activating this wearable device and it's calculating the velocity of the ball and the rotator wheel. So, so he's able to actually figure out which of the 38 pockets in the roulette wheel it's more likely to land in. So he's adding just this little bit of information to give himself a, a uh, just better odds than anyone had ever had before in roulette. So he's turning a, a mugs game into actually a game of, of math where he, he has a, a chance of winning. So what I said to Ed is, so if you were approaching life as a game, having, having won the game of blackjack, having won the game of, of roulette, having won the game of hedge funds, um, how would you approach the same way of thinking to stack your odds in your favor in life? And he starts talking about how, for example, your, 
with your health, you're dealt certain cards and that's, and that's chance, but then it's your decision how you play those cards. And so whether you get vaccinated, whether you exercise, stuff like that it has a huge impact. And, and so he at the age of, I think now he's 86, he, he has a personal trainer a couple of times a week. He goes walking three miles a day for about five or six days a week. So he takes, he takes his health very seriously. And he also, he had a very happy marriage for about half a century. And then his, his wife died and he, he got remarried. And he said, um, he said to me, yeah, who, who you spend your time with is really the most important determinant of a happy life. And so he's not, he's not let his ability to make money knock him off course and, and, and distract him from these other things, like investing time with his kids, investing time with his wife, exercising, eating well. So he's very balanced. And I mean, it helps, it helps that he's got about 100 extra IQ points. Yeah, so, so that's yeah. given him an advantage. But I think he's sort of won the game of life as well. And, and, and one of the things that he said to me that I really liked, it wasn't just about relationships. He, he said, um, he, I, I said to him, you know, do you think it's an advantage being moral and ethical? And he said, I don't know. It may be an advantage, an edge to be unethical on Wall Street. You know, you see all of these people doing, doing really well, enriching themselves by behaving totally unethically. And then he said, but, but he said, it seems like an edge. He said, you can rip more raw meat off the carcass of life. But he said, in the end, you're left with nothing. And he said, and That's you look back, quote. it's a wonderful line. And he said, and you look back and, and you just realize that, that you've been chasing the wrong thing all of these years. And that to me is a very, very profound insight. It's, it's this idea that the, the, the manner of your victory in life also matters. It's not just about the scale of the victory. It's how, how did you treat people? Did you, did you approach life as a zero-sum game mm-hmm. or, or, and feel like for me to win, somebody else has to lose? And, and, and Charlie Munger also, I think, has been a very important model for me here where there's a beautiful quote um, from Warren Buffett talking about Charlie Munger. Buffett, Buffett wrote the foreword to a, a, a book called Damn Right that's a, that's a biography of, of Munger. And he said, in 41 years, I've never seen Charlie take advantage of anybody. And, and he said he always takes less of the credit than he deserves and more of the blame. And, I, and he said, and I've, I've, knowing, I, I've seen him knowingly take the, the worst end of a deal with me and, and many other people. And, and you think of that and you think of the fact that Munger is a billionaire and you think, what's, what's more impressive? Is it that he's a billionaire? and you know has a beautiful catamaran and a big house in LA or whatever or is it the manner of victory the 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 fact that he's he's won without screwing people and and he said to me he he, he was talking about uh, about the happiness of his life and he said i've been a good partner to warren and warren's been a marvelous partner to me and and he talks about how if you want a good partner be a good partner and if you want a good spouse be a good spouse and and it's such a simple idea, like most like most great truths. This is not complicated, but but as he would say about investing, it's simple, not easy. Same thing about being a good spouse. Being, I, I was thinking yesterday, my 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 wife drove off to pick our daughter up from college, and she did this thing that she always does when she goes away, which is she makes the bed before she goes. So she's not going to sleep here. And yet she's made the bed for me. Just think of that as an act of kindness. And I sort of pointed this out to my son. I'm like, 
look at your mother. Like, like I've been with her for 30 years, right? Since I was 22. The sort of person who makes the bed before they leave because it's just kind. So I sort of, I look at the great investors and I look at the people who've had good lives and I think, what are they doing that tilts the tilts the playing field to their advantage? And you, I, I think when I look at people like, like Ed Thorpe or Munger or Tom Gaynor, I see, I see the, the decency and the ethics and stuff. And I think whether, whether it works in every situation or not, I think it works overall holistically, because I think if you behave like a snake in business, your yes. kids see it. And, and, and you bring back some of that snakishness to your family. And, and I, I remember, I remember studying one billionaire who I'd interviewed, who I ended up not writing about, because I just thought he wasn't a particularly admirable human being in any way. And I think one of his kids had been accused of, of rape and stuff. And I was like, you know, the father's unethical. And I, I don't know the situation. I'm not trying to be judgmental about it. But sure. I just was thinking, this is not someone I really want to, I want to hold up as an example of how to live. And yeah, he's a brilliant moneymaker. And he's a very, very shrewd, clever guy. But I'm just not that interested. I, what, what am I going to teach anyone about how to live? Whereas I look at someone like Ed Thorpe or Tom Gaynor, and I, and I see, I, you know, that scene you were mentioning before of Tom Gaynor le leaving his, his office at his Fortune 500 company and driving in his little Toyota Prius to, to the, because he, does, he thinks the world would be better off without uh, oil and without too much oil. And, he's, yeah. and, and, and he doesn't need to show off the fact that he's a very, very wealthy man. And he goes to the supermarket and he, he buys the, the salmon and then he goes home and cooks me a meal. And before the meal, he, he and his wife like stretch their hands out and, and hold my hand and he does grace. I mean, there's something very understated and modest. And, and he, he was saying to me, not in a boastful way, he said, look, I, I'm a nice guy. And he said, that's an advantage in life because he said, there are so many people who want to help me. He said, they just want to help. And I, I, I sort of coined this phrase that I was overly proud of, which was the, the mensch effect, where I think he's just a mensch. He's just a, a good guy. He's a kind bloke. And, and I think there's a, there's a real benefit to behaving in that way, both, both in your professional life and in your personal life. And so there's a, there's a sort of, I, I, would, I would say there's a, I try not to be a proselytizer, but there is a sort of stealth spiritual aspect to the, to the book where I'm kind of trying to say, if, if you just get vastly rich and you just focus on the money, it's a pretty stunted life. And, and when you look at the investors who are the happiest and the most successful and have the best invest, have the best relationships, they tend to be much more focused on, on behaving decently and compounding goodwill by by do, do, doing doing favors for other people, and they tend to be fairly charitable, and they have some mission beyond their own ego. It's not all about me, 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 and how how do I how do I gather as many assets as possible and rip as much raw meat off the carcass of life? And <laughs> and so that that to me has been really helpful because I'm trying to figure out how to live myself. And I and I always wondered am am I am I just naive and idealistic to think that that you can behave decently and it works out. To your benefit and 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 so i've taken comfort from seeing people like tom gainer do very well and 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 tom said to me maybe it doesn't matter anyway maybe 
maybe it's still the right way to behave. And even if it didn't work, it's still the right way to behave. And I, and I think, I think there's a benefit in terms of self-respect that I think if you, if, if you behave in a decent way and you try to be ethical, look, look, we're all deeply flawed and we screw up the whole time. But if you, if you try to be decent, um, I do think there are great practical benefits because I think you draw people who are trustworthy and who trust you and who are decent and who don't approach life as a zero sum game. So I think, I think there's a tremendous practical benefit. I actually believe that it works, but I also think you're just happier. You feel better about yourself. A quote that uh, Monish Pabrai um, that you have in the, in the book, as he said, uh, anytime you get a truth that humanity doesn't understand, that's a huge competitive advantage. Is there, is there a truth that you've pulled out of either the book itself or other interviews that you've had that you believe is a competitive advantage for investing or life? Yeah, it's a great question. The, the notion of the compounding of goodwill is a massively powerful idea that I get from this book. And it's, it's a phrase that I actually think was originally Ken Schubenstein's, but that Guy Spear, who I'm very close to, um, I think got from Ken. And I think like most ideas, none of us can really remember whose idea it was. But I think that's a really beautiful and important idea that, that instead of just focusing on compounding money, you should be focusing on compounding goodwill. And, and Guy Spear, who I'm, I'm very close to and who I helped write his autobiography, The Education of a Value Investor, initially started doing this in a, in a fairly cynical way. He, he figured out, I think he had read Robert Cialdini's work on, on reciprocation. And he figured out, well, so if I behave really decently, other people are then going to reciprocate and everything will work out well. And then, and, and because he's a very self-aware and honest guy, um, he'll talk openly about, uh, about these kind of moral, moral failings, uh, which is one of the reasons why I like him so much. And, 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 and he said that basically then you start to become addicted to the, to the feelings of happiness that you have when you're helping other people. And so I, I've been the recipient, the beneficiary of this over many years, because he just does so many kind things to help me. And, and, and I think I, I see his joy in in helping other people and 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 I think it's made him very happier very very much happier and and there's a great paradox here which is you know the idea of the hedonic treadmill right where where behavioral psychologists talk about how you you live in this hedonistic way where it's always like yeah I want more more good food and and, and more money and and more vacation time and and a faster car and a more beautiful wife or whatever. And so you get on this hedonic treadmill that makes you very miserable um, because it's never enough. And so there's this great paradox that when you get beyond yourself, when you get beyond your own ego and you start to look out for other people, and so you're less focused on, on your own hedonism, you actually become happier. And, and I think that's, a, that's one of the deep kind of um, spiritual and practical truths about life, which is that, that you... And it's, a, and it's a difficult thing to do, right? There's a, there's a great line from Ben Franklin that Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett often quote, where they say, an empty sack can't stand straight. And this is one of the great problems in life is that when you feel a lack, when, when you feel like, oh, my life's not really working out and I'm kind of miserable and I, I feel kind of deflated and, 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 you know, how come everyone else is doing better than me and I'm underappreciated? It's very hard to be giving and to share and to get out of your own your uh, your own ego your own sense of what's wrong with your life and 
and and so it's it's not an easy thing to do but i think but i think the more that you focus on helping other people on being more sharing on being kinder on being more compassionate giving to other people whether it's your your time your energy your love your money whatever it is um it's just this great paradox in life but you become happier and it gets you out of this trap and that that to me resonates very deeply and i i I've spent a lot of time over the years studying um things like the great capitalists who um some of the the wisest and most profound thinkers i've ever encountered and there's a there's a great capitalist called rav ashlag rav means teacher who would talk about how what you're really trying to do over the course of your life is is transform what he would call the desire to receive for the self alone which is the ego it's 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 me 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 it's let me have more money more 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 everything uh, you're trying to transform that desire to receive for the self alone into the desire to receive for the sake of sharing and so it's like yeah i still want to have the the nice home and the nice spouse and the the nice family and i i want money so that i can be financially independent but if it's just for me then there's a kind of short circuit there's a there's a there's a lack of um a flow to it in a sense and that to me is a is one of the deep secrets of life and it's it's simple not easy right to transform your own desire for the self alone into a sense of like yeah let me focus a little more on other people is not an easy thing to do but i think that that to me has been very clarifying and i i think i think that's a that's a filter that i use for the whole of my life i think okay so 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 every time i see some awful aspect of my own ego of my my desire for the self alone i'm like ah, damn yeah well i guess i got to try to try to um try to transform that a little bit purify that a little bit and become a little less selfish and a little kinder and a more compassionate more generous and and look out for other people and and when i look at people like tom gaina or or nick sleep or guy spear or arnold vandenberg who's one of the one of the key characters in the book i think they've tapped into this truth and so it's not i'm not writing about it in a sort of proselytizing uh holier than now kind of sanctimonious way like i'm some sort of saint who's mastered this game and is is like totally selfless and uh, and doesn't get angry and, and 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 you know all of that and doesn't think about my own my own ego and needs but i am trying to i'm trying to suggest i think that there's a there's a way that i think is a little more enlightened and and there, there i think one of the things that i love is the idea that there can be a kind of more enlightened form of capitalism that's not just a zero sum game that's not just if 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 for me to win you must lose and i think that makes us all kind of feel a little bit depleted and empty and so you win the game and you feel like you lost anyway and and i think when i see people like guy spear compounding goodwill and and taking his good fortune and sharing it with others i see the joy in that and and that's had a huge impact on me and i i think i think it's a it's an act of faith in a way to to switch from one system to another because we you know i grew up in england right where and i went to eton which is where you know these guys like boris johnson and david cameron and prince william and prince harry went and you know so it was this ultimate kind of privileged um privileged background i i wasn't from a particularly i mean a relatively privileged family but we weren't like you know these these tycoon types we were sort of you know refugees from from um poland and russia and ukraine who came from you know jews who came from a shtetl and came to 
to London and we just, you know, and we had, our family had huge respect for learning and education. So, so I was a little bit of an outsider there as well. But, but so I saw this world of great privilege. Um, and I think the rules that we were taught there were very much what Buffett would call outer scorecard rules. It was sort of, um, am I the smartest? Am I the best? Where did I come in my year? And, and you would literally, you would sit in a room um, with 220 people in your year and they would read from, from 220 up to number one out loud where you came in your year. Uh, I mean, it's shocking. It's appalling. That's, right? a, that's, that's incredible. That, wow. Yeah. So, so imagine how that leaves you. It leaves you thinking, um, how do I stack up against everyone else? And so it sets up this kind of Darwinian contest that I think can make you extremely successful, but not necessarily very functional or happy. And so I think for, for me, part of my process in life has been to kind of re-educate myself by, by studying um, not only the great investors, but, but also a lot of philosophy and spirituality and stuff like that. And just, just being like, okay, well, is there a better system? And so when I see things like this idea of the compounding of goodwill or the mensch effect, you know, just trying to be more decent or this idea of trying to, trying to transform the desire for the self alone into the desire to receive for the sake of sharing. I'm like, that's a better system, but it takes, it takes actually a degree of courage to say, I'm going to dismantle this thing that, that I used to live by, but that I actually think is wrong. And, and that kind of worked in many ways. I mean, I did become pretty successful pretty young, but I think, I think I'd, I have felt so depressed and depleted by it all. It wasn't, it just didn't make me happy in any way. And, and so I think this other model of, of trying to behave better and not, and not feeling that I have to clamber over everybody else to get ahead. I, I, I just, I just think it's a better way to live. And, and so I would sort of, I would encourage people that as they read the book and they, they look at people like, like Nick Sleep or Tom Gaynor yeah. or Arnold Vandenberg, ask yourself, why, why does this make me feel better? And, and what do, Buffett used to say, when, when you're in a classroom and you look around, and you see who, who's the person I admire most. Why don't, why don't I try to become more like that person? And, and so there's something aspirational, I think, without, without wanting to lionize or idealize any of these people, because they're all flawed, just as you and I are, um, well, me more so than you. They're, they, um, they're all flawed. But I think when you look at these characteristics that they have that make you feel like, yeah, that's really admirable, just start to say, well, how do I tilt my life in that direction, How, if that's directionally correct, let me just gradually tilt my life in that direction. Yeah, that personal background to me, as I think about the book and what I liked about the book, that that story is enlightening about how you ended up where you ended up and and why you wrote the way you did. I actually, um, I mean, so your background is so impressive. You you talked about Eaton, then uh, Oxford, then Columbia. Then you're um, editing Time Magazine, if I remember correctly, for uh, Europe, Middle East, and Asia. You've lived all over the world. Can you talk about some of that, just like living uh, an, an international upbringing and, and life and how that has changed your views of the world? Yeah, it was a very thrilling life in many ways. I, I would do these things. Well, I, I, I went to live in Hong Kong to edit the Asian edition. Initially, I was the deputy editor and then, and then the editor left and, and, and I 
I started editing the magazine, although I did have adult supervision um, uh, back in back in New York. Um, but the um, yeah, it was incredible. I mean, I would get to go, for example, if I mean, during something like the tsunami in Asia, you would be able to send these amazing reporters and writers to um, places like Aceh, you know, these really difficult places that had just been devastated. And I, you know, I hired someone like Aravind Adiga, who is a friend of mine who, who won the Booker Prize with his first novel. He's an amazing, amazing writer. And I would hire him in India. And then I get to send him somewhere like Sri Lanka to, to cover the tsunami. So that was, that was really kind of extraordinary. And then, and then there were things like, um, if you know, I would go to India to interview the Indian Prime Minister. So here's a guy who's who's got what a population of 1.2, 1.4 billion, something like that. And you're sitting maybe three, four feet from him, and you're just looking at him, and you look in his eyes, and you realize just how sad he looks. And so that was it was just like a really fascinating life experience. Where I I would go when I was editing the European edition of Time and was living in London. I went to to Poland and interviewed Donald Tusk, who was then the Polish prime minister and is, uh, I guess, since then became um, head of the European Union. And um, so, I mean, one of the most powerful guys in Europe. And, um, you know, I'm sitting there and suddenly someone passes him a message and he says, my wife is coming. And his wife had just left their home in, in the sticks and was moving to Warsaw to be with him. And, I, and I'm staying in this beautiful hotel in Warsaw that's like kind of the nicest hotel in Warsaw and I call my mother in London and, and both of us had exactly the same feeling, which is the last time our family was in Poland, we were fleeing um, from pogroms and the like. And here we are, I'm back and I, you know, we survived, thank God, and I'm here and I'm interviewing the, the most powerful guy in the country and I'm staying in the most beautiful hotel, which I think had been the Nazi party headquarters wow. um, when they invaded Poland. So it was just, it was just a very, um, a very rich, and thrilling life and at the same time very intense and and two of the people I worked with um who subsequently sort of rose to very high positions both died very young and I think it was it, it was a very exciting life but it was kind of overwhelming you were living at a pace that was very difficult working constantly and so for me part of part of my part of my journey has been to try to get more in alignment with who I am and I, I think that's with writing books, which I'd always been a little scared of. It, it was always kind of the real deal for me. That was what I think I, I, I was born to do probably. And so even though that was a very intoxicating life and very exciting that you get to interview presidents and prime ministers and travel to, to China and India and Pakistan and Bangladesh and all of these amazing places, I think, I think sitting, sitting quietly and reading books and thinking and drawing lessons from many different areas and interviewing extraordinary people and trying to synthesize what they figured out and share that, that that's truer to who I am, I think. And, and I think that's one, of the, that's one of the themes of this book is, is the, how, how do you live a life that's in alignment with who you are in a yes. deep sense? And that's, that's one of the things that I get from seeing people like Monish Pabrai is, He's someone who's deeply in alignment, I would say, for the most part anyway, with, with his peculiarities and his idiosyncrasies and his talents and, and his Absolutely. tastes. And, and I, I think that's a goal for all of us is to, and it's not an easy one. And it's, it's not one that's, um, 
it's not one that's stable where you're like, okay, I've done it. I nailed this. It's dynamic. It's constantly changing and you're constantly having to recalibrate. But I think about that a lot about how to become more, more aligned, more authentic and, and live kind of in a way that's aligned with my own talents and temperament and peculiarities. So this is, this is zooming out a little bit um, and, and taking it outside the book. But one thing that I was thinking about as I was reading the book is the going to something that I know uh, Buffett's talk about a lot is inequality and luck and how mm. if he wasn't born in, in the US, how life could have changed. And we've talked about inequality a good amount on the podcast and specifically around participation in the markets and how I think it, the New York Times came out with an article earlier this year, I think where they said something like 10% of the US population owns 84% of the, the value, right, in the stock market, something like that. And we, we've tried to think a lot about how you can increase participation in the markets, minority investors, female investors. And in the book, you talk about Laura Garretts, um, you talk about um, Pabrai, and I think th those are two that stuck out for me that weren't white males necessarily. Mm. And I was curious as to how you've thought about or whether you've thought about increasing broader participation in the markets and what that might look like. Yeah, I definitely worried about this a lot in writing the book that, um, I, I mean, there's, there's one significant female character in the book, as you mentioned, Laura Garrett, who I think is a remarkable person. And I wondered, is it, is, is the fact that I'm not finding more women to write about is that a reflection of a structural imbalance in the investment world? Is it a reflection of my, my own bias? And I, and I really worried about that. And um, I don't know. I, I think it's a tricky one. And I, I talked a lot to my kids about this. And, and my daughter said to me, no, no, she is the best character in the book. She's the most interesting character in the book. And, and, um, but it's difficult because you look for, you look for um, women in the industry with amazing returns um, who you want to celebrate. And it's hard to find that many of them. And, and one of the things Laura Garrett said to me is she said, I have all these friends who are unbelievable investors, women investors, and they quit the business in their 40s because they were just sick of men, kind of alpha males who weren't as talented as them, kind of thumping their chests and, and dominating and getting themselves on the covers of magazines and stuff. And so there's a, there's a structural issue there that I, as, as my son would often say, is above my pay grade. And, um, <laughs> but, I, but I worry about it and I worry about my own, how my own sort of um, hidden biases might be affecting the way that I that I write about it, and and I, I would say if 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 you come across people I ought to write about or ought to interview who um, uh, from very different backgrounds, um, boy, would I love to focus on them more because I I think I think all of us are becoming more keenly aware of our own prejudices and biases than we were before, um, and I, I'm by no means immune to this, and I'm and I'm. I'm kind of self-conscious about it. And, and so maybe, maybe that self-examination is really helpful. The, the, the other thing I would say is I, I think you guys should probably interview Joe Greenblatt at some point who, who wrote a book recently about, about equality. And he's a really interesting guy. And I think yeah, we he's... love him so much. I mean, we, we, oh, we broke down that book, so uh, we should get him on the podcast. That's a great suggestion. He, he would be good. He's so I think he's thought a lot about these issues and, He's very involved in these charter schools 
that have extraordinary results. Success Academy has these incredible results in, in New York in, in some really quite difficult areas where their results are just are just remarkable. And actually my son is going to go be a teacher there in a few months. So I'm 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 very proud of. So oh, these are phenomenal. these are issues. Yeah, thanks. So so these are issues that I'm kind of thinking about and I don't have an easy answer. Um and I and and even in my answers to you, I'm treading warily because I'm aware that I can say something stupid and and self-destructive and insensitive. So uh um I, yeah. I, I appreciate you even tackling it because it is a it's a sensitive and systemic issue and i was curious as to whether you you thought about it as you went through here so i, I just appreciate you providing a response thanks and and i mean gu you know guide me on it down the road i mean if there's stuff that i'm that i'm missing if there are people that i'm not talking to or think issues that i'm not looking at um let me know because I, I i think one of one of the one of the ideas that i got from working on this book that i got partly from writing about sir john templeton who we didn't talk about yeah. is this idea of remaining extremely open-minded that this is this is one of the benefits one of the advantages that the great investors have is they don't even though they have tremendous amount of conviction and self-confidence in certain ways there is this humility this sense of what don't i know and let me keep learning let me remain open and i i think because i've been wrong about lots of things as a writer over the years i've retained I have, I have many flaws, but I've retained that sense of open-mindedness where I'm like, what am I missing here? What don't I understand? And what do I need to learn? And I, I think that's a very useful characteristic for a writer and for an investor, just to, to tread lightly with this sense of, I, I don't understand this issue, and I know that I don't understand it, and I know that I don't have the solutions, and I know that I need to learn more. And I, I think that's a pretty helpful, that's a, that's a pretty helpful attitude, whether you're whether you're dealing with these very complex social issues or or with the markets, just to have the humility, the, the humility to, to do what Howard Marks says, which is to say, I, I belong to the I don't know school of thought. And, and so there are certain things that we do know where I think I think you you try to find a few things in life where you have strong enough knowledge and strong enough conviction that you think, yeah, yeah, I, I believe this is true or approximately true. But for most things, I don't think we know. And I think I think part of being a wiser individual is is to accept our to, to sort of acknowledge our own ignorance and limitation and, and and bias. Yeah. So I actually think this leads perfectly into the the question that we ask all our guests, um, which is and, and so we'll wrap up with this, um, which is what is your dream retirement and how is that different from your life today? Yeah, I don't have any intention of retiring. I, I'm expecting to keep working and reading and thinking and learning. And I, I regard, um, I, I wasn't a very good student at, at university. I was really good at getting into top institutions and then they were always really disappointed with me. <laughs> um, but, but I actually think I, um, uh, yeah, my, 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 the professor who admitted me to Oxford um, so, said to me, he was never gonna take another Etonian because uh, I, I and one other Etonian were both such good applicants. I mean, we, we have been so well taught. And, and so he was so disappointed when he realized how lazy we were. Um, but, I, but I took the actual reading and the studying, uh, even though I didn't do very well there, um, I deeply wanna learn. And I still regard myself as in college. So here I am at 52, 
and I'm just constantly reading. I mean, your your listeners won't be able to hear, but on the video here, you can see that just like my bookshelf behind me looks like it's just going to collapse because it's just covered with books and and it, it just I'm surrounded by books, and so I'm constantly learning and thinking and discussing uh, sort of problems and issues and subjects that fascinate me with with other people who are really smart and trying to trying to figure things out and that process of 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 thinking through how to live and how to think is just infinitely fascinating to me and i so maybe maybe retirement for me um would be reducing a little bit of the complexity and the intensity so maybe i wouldn't um I wouldn't feel so guilty about being two years late on my book. I, I'd be working at a more comfortable pace, but I wouldn't want to stop working because I think, I think you want to, you, for me anyway, I want to keep learning. And there's a wonderful thing from Arnold Vandenberg, who, who, um, who I end the book with, who's one of my favorite, if not my favorite character in the book, a remarkable human being who, who talks about, the three things that are most important to him, and I'll 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 forget what they are. But he but he said I'll be I'll be working on self improvement until the day that I die. And here's a guy who's 81 years old, and he's still constantly trying to become um, trying to work on himself. And he'll call and he'll be so excited about something he's figured out. He'll say, "I've been studying the subconscious for 45 years, William, and, and I figured out something new that I'd never realized." And and so he's just learning constantly. And, and that to me is a thrilling prospect. I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, on, on the day that I die, you know, I hope it's a long time from now that I'm thinking, ah, that's what, that's what that thing meant, you know? And, but, but more so, I think you want to distill that stuff so that you can share it in some way that it's, so the idea of, of learning constantly, but not, not so that you just feel smarter and you feel, you know, it's, it's learning so that you can somehow pass on things to other people. Um, that's a, so I'm not trying to be kind of sanctimonious or self-righteous about it, but I think that's a, there's something deeply joyful about that for me. A, a, a quote that I think was from Vandenberg's psychiatrist or psychologist that I, I think is the thing that will stick with me until forever mm. is that life if life is more important than your principles, then you'll sacrifice your principles. And if your principles are more important than your life, then you sacrifice your life. Um, yeah. I, I just, I absolutely love that one. And the ending the book with that story, I think was phenomenal. I mean, just to put that in context for your listeners, that was something where Arnold's life had been saved by a, probably a 17 year old girl who was a total stranger. And he, he grew up on, on the street that Anne Frank grew up on. And he was a Jewish kid born in 1939 and was in hiding for the first couple of years of his life. And he couldn't understand why this stranger, this 17 year old girl um, would put her life at risk to save him and why her father would have allowed her to do it. And so that, so then his, his, his shrink, Dr. Ramaljack, many years later said to him, yeah, for some people their, their principles are more important than their life. And for other people, their life is more important than their principles. And so for Arnold, that had a really transformative effect because he decided, well, so I have to live my life in a way that's somehow worthy of the people who risk their lives to save me. And I, I think that's a very clarifying filter to say, well, yeah, well, do, do I want to lead a life that's driven by principle 
or do I just just want to sort of self-aggrandize and self-enrich as much as possible and screw the principles? And, and so I think that's one reason why reading about Arnold makes us feel better. It makes you feel like, ah, there's a better way. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, William, thank you so much for taking time with us. Uh, we enjoyed this and uh, we're going to sell some books for you uh, uh, thank because you. it's a great book. And, and so all the listeners should definitely check it out. I've listened to, I've actually read the book and listened to the audio book and they're both great. Um, the reviews are off the charts on Amazon and Audible. I think uh, this is really uh, well received and I understand why. So thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, thanks. It's been a delight. And and your your questions are great. And I can see how deeply engaged you are with these issues. So it's just, it's been a real pleasure for me to chat with you. 